On June 19, 1957, Dwight David Eisenhower was six months into his second term as President of the United States and played golf with Japan Prime Minister Nobusuke Kishi at Burning Tree Club in Bethesda, Maryland. Featured television listings included Kraft TV Theater. Larry Hagman, son of Mary Martin, makes his debut in Nothing Personal, starring Robert Preston and Nina Fosh. In Color, U.S. Steel Hour, Patty Page makes her dramatic debut in Upbeat, co-starring Biff McGuire and John Cipher. And Men of Annapolis, a young midshipman baseball player decides whether to help out his bankrupt father by turning professional or to stay in the Navy. Speaking of baseball, Hank Aaron hit his 19th home run of the season and was robbed of another by Willie Mays as the Milwaukee Braves beat the New York Giants 6 to nothing at Milwaukee County Stadium. And the film 12 Angry Men opened at the Center Mayfield, Fairmount, and Richmond Theaters on the east side of Cleveland, Ohio. Directed by Sidney Lumet, produced by Henry Fonda and Reginald Rose, and starring Fonda, the film features a now iconic cast of 12 supremely accomplished actors, including Jack Warden as juror number seven. Jack Warden was in the early stages of an acting career that earned him two Oscar nominations and an Emmy for playing George Hallis in the TV film Brian's Song. Warden contributed to numerous outstanding movies and television shows for 50 years from 1950 to 2000. Where have you gone, Jack Warden? Welcome to Where Have You Gone? People, places, and things that are gone but not forgotten, forgotten but not gone, and the people and places saving these stories for your enjoyment and benefit today. I'm Morris Eckhouse. Years ago, Robert Osborne did a promo between films on Turner Classic Movies for a catalog of films on VHS and DVD. It's now branded as the TCM Catalog. Osborne talked about collecting films and building your own library. When you set out to collect films, you collect personal favorites and films that mean something to you. For me, those have included Woody Allen films and Alfred Hitchcock films and numerous personal favorites that might not exactly be considered classics. I don't recall ever making it a point to collect Jack Warden films, but I probably have as many films with him in them as with just about any other actor. Clearly, there's something I like about the films he's been in. Jack Warden was born John Warden Lebzelter, Jr., on September 18, 1920, in Newark, New Jersey. He was raised in Louisville, Kentucky. He was briefly a boxer. He joined the United States Navy in 1938 and the Merchant Marine in 1941. He quit the Merchant Marine in 1942 and joined the Army. According to legend, the IMDB mini-bio, Warden broke his leg and missed the D-Day invasion. While recuperating, he read a play by Clifford Odets and was moved to become an actor after the war. Early in his acting career, Warden was part of Margot Jones's Theater 47 in Dallas. He appeared several times on Broadway, including as Arthur Goldman in The Man in the Glass Booth in 1969 when he replaced Donald Pleasance in the starring role. Jack Warden had something of a career year in 1957 appearing in three outstanding dramatic films penned by three legendary writers. Edge of the City by Robert Allen Arthur, The Bachelor Party by Patty Chayefsky, and Twelve Angry Men by Reginald Rose. During the 1960s, according to IMDb, Warden appeared in just six feature films, but he was cast in numerous television shows, including icons like The Twilight Zone, The Untouchables, Ben Casey, Naked City, 77 Sunset Strip, Route 66, Bewitched, Dr. Kildare, The Virginian, Wagon Train, The Fugitive, and The Invaders, before taking on the lead role of Lieutenant Mike Haynes, 
for two seasons, 49 episodes of NYPD from 1967 to 1969. In the 1970s, Warden earned Oscar nominations for Best Supporting Actor in the Warren Beatty films Shampoo and Heaven Can Wait. He won an Emmy for playing George Hallis in the TV film Brian's Song in 1971. In 1976, Warden was third billed, after Dustin Hoffman and Robert Redford, in All the President's Men, the film directed by Alan J. Pakula and based on the Bob Woodward, Carl Bernstein book, was nominated for eight Academy Awards and won four. One of Warden's final films of the 1980s was 1987's September, written and directed by Woody Allen. He also appeared in two of Allen's Academy Award-nominated films of the 1990s, 1994's Bullets Over Broadway and 1995's Mighty Aphrodite. During his long career, Warden appeared in several baseball stories. He was in Rod Serling's story Old MacDonald Had a Curve and played the manager in the Twilight Zone baseball story The Mighty Casey. He played the commissioner in the teleplay Flashing Spikes directed by John Ford, and he took on the role of Morris Buttermaker, originally portrayed by Walter Matthau on the big screen, in the television version of The Bad News Bears. Jack Warden had a great career, but so did many other character actors of the mid-20th century. Why am I devoting an episode of Where Have You Gone to Jack Warden? Hopefully the answer to that question will become more apparent as Where Have You Gone Jack Warden continues. We hope you are enjoying this episode of Where Have You Gone? For more information about the show, its topics, and its guests, check out our website at whygpodcast.com. There you can also find recommendations for fascinating books, films, TV shows, and recordings to learn even more about our topics, guests, and ideas. You can also find us on Facebook at Where Have You Gone Podcast and on Twitter at WHYG Podcast. And now, back to the episode. A turning point in Jack Warden's career came when he went to Texas to work with the Theater 47 Company of Margot Jones. There's a wonderful book about Margot Jones called Margot, The Life and Theater of Margot Jones by Helen Sheehy, published in 1989 by Southern Methodist University Press. The first mention of Warden in the book is on page 132. We learn that he was one of four production assistants who would also play some smaller parts for Jones's Theater 47. She writes, Margot thought that red-headed, blue-eyed Jack Warden, the waggish prankster of the group, was a talent in the rough who had that rare, wonderful quality known as charm, plus comic sense and timing, a real potential personality. Sheehy interviewed Warden, who told her, I was a lifeguard in a pool. Margot gave me the first break I ever had. During the 1950s, Warden worked consistently on television. In particular, he was in several episodes of Mr. Peepers in the character of the athletic coach Frank T. Whip. Warden was on the Broadway stage in the 1950s, appearing in Golden Boy. It was a revival of Golden Boy, written and directed by Clifford Odets. A View from the Bridge written by Arthur Miller, and The Body Beautiful, a musical comedy with a boxing theme like Golden Boy. And there's an article that says, From the moment Warden broke through on Broadway in 1955 in Arthur Miller's A View from the Bridge, he said he never stopped working. By choice or happenstance or a bit of both, Jack Warden worked with great writers and directors in the 1950s. He had a bit part in The Asphalt Jungle from 1950, story by W.R. Burnett, 
Screenplay by Ben Maddow and John Huston, and directed by John Huston. He had a larger role in From Here to Eternity, from 1953. Story by James Jones, screenplay by Daniel Teradash, and directed by Fred Zinneman. I've mentioned the three films from 1957. Edge of the City, directed by Martin Ritt and produced by David Suskind. The Bachelor Party, directed by Delbert Mann, produced by Hecht Hill Lancaster. And Twelve Angry Men, directed by Sidney Lumet and produced by its star and its writer, Henry Fonda and Reginald Rose. There was The Sound and the Fury from 1959, story by William Faulkner, screenplay by Irving Ravitich and Harriet Frank Jr., and director Martin Ritt once again. And in That Kind of Woman from 1959, Warden was again directed by Sidney Lumet. The story was by Robert Lowry, and the screenplay by Walter Bernstein. Edge of the City, The Bachelor Party, and Twelve Angry Men all have their roots in the golden age of television. The Bachelor Party was the second episode of the sixth season of the Philco Television Playhouse on October 11, 1953. The teleplay was produced by Fred Coe, one of the legends of the golden age of television. Eddie, the character played by Jack Warden in the film, was played by Joe Mantell on television. Twelve Angry Men was the first episode of the seventh season of Studio One, September 20, 1954. It was directed by Franklin Schaffner, the future Academy Award-winning director of Patton. Edge of the City is based on the teleplay A Man is Ten Feet Tall, written by Robert Allen Arthur and directed by Robert Mulligan. It was the third episode of the eighth season of the Philco Television Playhouse, on October 2, 1955. In the teleplay, Martin Balsam plays Charlie Malick, played by Jack Warden in the film. Note that Balsam, Mantell, and Warden were all Academy Award nominees for Best Supporting Actor. Mantell was nominated for playing Angie in the film version of Patty Chayefsky's Marty, reprising the role he created in the 1953 teleplay. Balsam won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor for his role in A Thousand Clowns in 1966. Warden and Balsam appear together in the film version of Twelve Angry Men and in All the President's Men. So Jack Warden was climbing the ladder during the 1950s. The characters in From Here to Eternity, Edge of the City, The Bachelor Party, and Twelve Angry Men are all to an extent, cut from the same cloth. The character in Edge of the City, described as a dock worker and a vicious bully, is the toughest of the bunch. But Ward made his mark in all of these roles and certainly seemed poised for even greater stardom moving into the 1960s. All the information I've related about Jack Warden so far comes from basic sources such as books and the internet. There's another source I have not yet tapped, and that's the audio commentary on DVDs of some of the films featuring Warden. These include Used Cars, All the President's Men, and Justice for All, Brian's Song, and The Verdict. These are some of the most important films in Warden's filmography. I started to watch the commentary on used cars and made the following notes. I learned that Jack Petty, a makeup man who worked on films from 1966 to 1995, did Warden's makeup on used cars and on the television series The Bad News Bears. He also worked on such notable films as Seconds, The Fortune Cookie, The Odd Couple, and A New Leaf. John Candy was originally cast in the role of Sam Slayton, but he was also cast in another film at the same time, and so he was not used in Used Cars. Candy's former castmate on SCTV, Joe Flaherty, replaced him in the role. Early in Used Cars, there's a long tracking shot with Warden and another actor. The director, Robert Zemeckis, says that he had been reluctant to use such a shot 
without other coverage shots in case something went wrong. But he was confident this time because he was working with such a pro as Jack Warden. Warden was referred to as a great classic movie actor. As an example, he wanted to know the lens on the camera only because a certain lens requires a big reaction and a different lens requires something more subtle. If you listen to the audio commentary, you'll hear Zemeckis, Kurt Russell, and Bob Gale. And if you stay tuned, you'll hear Bob Gale when he joins me after a short break. For more information about Where Have You Gone, this episode and other episodes in the series, visit our website, whygpodcast.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening. Joining me now is Bob Gale, an Oscar-nominated screenwriter, Bob and Robert Zemeckis wrote the original Back to the Future. Bob wrote the screenplays for Back to the Future 2 and Back to the Future 3. Immediately before Back to the Future, Bob produced and co-wrote Used Cars. Bob, welcome to Where Have You Gone? And thank you for joining me to talk about Jack Warden. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. What do you recall about how Jack Warden came to be cast in your film Used Cars? Well, it's a kind of interesting story. Our first choice for the part of of Roy Fuchs, and for those who haven't ever seen the movie, I suppose I better give you a little bit of an introduction to it. Uh, The story stars Kurt Russell as uh, car salesman Rudy Russo, who works for a broken down car lot run by uh, Luke Fuchs, who has a competing car lot run by his brother across the street, Roy L. Fuchs. So, it's a war between two um, scheming car dealers, the good used car lot versus the bad used car lot. And our original first choice for the part of, of Royal Fuchs was Robert Preston, because Bob and I were huge fans of his and, of course, the music man. And, you know, who better to play a car salesman than Robert Preston? But he turned us down. And then we thought about uh, Kevin Conway. Uh, We liked the idea that he was kind of a little guy and could do the Napoleonic thing. He actually said yes, and then kind of at the last minute, he backed out. Uh, Why, we don't know. So we were kind of in a a crisis situation here, and we wanted to get some kind of a recognizable name. Jack was probably on our casting director's list and was undoubtedly on Columbia's list because, you know, he'd done those movies at Columbia and been nominated for an Oscar, and um, somebody, and I don't remember who it was, because we were trying to figure out, all right, how are we really going to cement a really great actor for this part? Up until this point, we had been casting for two different actors to play the brothers. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, somebody said to us, there are three things that every actor likes to do. They like to play drunk, they like to play dead, and they like to play more than one role in a single movie. And used cars had two of the three because Luke Fuchs dies in it. Mm-hmm. So when we went to Jack, we offered him both parts and he jumped at it. He just he loved the idea of playing these two guys and they weren't twins. You know, when you look at the movie, they are obviously related, uh, but they look significantly different. Luke clearly looks as if he's five, six, seven years older uh, than, than Roy does. And uh, Luke has a mustache and gray and hair, and Roy is, is more slick and is dressed in polyester. So that was, that was the convincer. You, you, get to play, you get to play both of these brothers. Let me ask you about casting, and it sounds like with just about any casting, some of it is skill, some of it's luck, some of it's timing. I imagine that budget plays a part. Is that all true? Absolutely. Absolutely. So what 
gave you or, or anybody else in the casting process the idea that he was right for the two roles? The two Jack Warden performances that made the biggest impressions on us were Twelve Angry Men uh, and Heaven Can Wait. You know, Twelve Angry Men, he, he's playing he's playing a jerk. And in Heaven Can Wait, he's playing a very sympathetic guy. So between those two roles, you know, we're seeing Jack's range and the type of thing that he can he can bring to these two parts. And you're talking about two parts in, in a long career. You mentioned the Academy Award nominations. He'd won an Emmy for Brian's song. He was, it seems like, the senior guy there. And you guys, you and, and Bob Zemeckis, were pretty early in your careers. What did you get from him as somebody that had had the kind of career he'd had to that point? Well, in a word, professionalism. I mean, Jack was the consummate pro. We never had to worry about him uh, making his call time. He never pulled any I'm a movie star stuff. He never gave us a hard time about anything. I mean, any, anything that he would ask for was always, always very, very reasonable. I know he insisted that we hire a makeup artist that he had a long relationship with, a man named Jack Petty. Mm -hmm. uh, we thought, okay, yeah, Jack needs to feel comfortable about what he's going to look like playing two different characters of course we'll hire jack if that jack petty if that's what's going to make jack warden happy so yeah so jack was both the adult in the room and uh then when we, <laughs> oh, we started shooting and and say jack had permission to to just let go with uh with the profanity and after a couple of days worth of dailies i got a call from the studio saying uh Hey, gee, can you guys ask Jack to kind of tone down on the on the swearing? <laughs> From what I've looked at, there there's not a lot in his resume to that point of this kind of a film, kind of a raunchy, for lack of a better word, in a lot of places. Uh, and yet it, it, it sounds to me like he took right to it. Oh, my God, did he ever take to it? There were times when, when Bob and I, had to just stifle our laughter. So a scene early on when uh, he is notified that he's going to get screwed over by the political machine, and he says, that goddamn mayor don't know dick. He don't know dick. And that was, that was all Jack. He don't know dick. That, was, that wasn't in the script. He just threw it in there. <laughs> God, this is great. This is just great. And you guys weren't so slavish to the script that uh, you allowed him to do that? Well, look, if anybody started going way off script, we'd we'd pull him back in. But Jack, <laughs> this is this is my favorite Jack Warden story of all. I okay. think Jack talks very fast and that's his style. And we had an, another actor uh, named Garrett Graham and Garrett would talk really slow. And some actors think that if they talk very slow, they will have more screen time. And, you know, Jack been around the block a million times. And so one day he pulls Garrett aside and he says, kid, you're fucking up. You're fucking up. You're talking too slow. And Garrett kind of doesn't quite understand what Jack is saying. And Jack says, you need to talk fast because I talk fast. I talk so fast that the editor can't get the scissors in between my lines. So I know that every line of dialogue that I say is going to be in the movie unless they cut the entire scene out. <laughs> and uh, it was true. We never, we couldn't cut around a line of dialogue that, that Jack said because he just ran everything together, but he made it work for the character, for both characters. And it was amazing to behold. And the postscript to this story is that a couple of years later, I, I had an office over at Columbia Pictures and the guys that were doing a TV series called Crazy Like a Fox had just cast Jack uh, and they were they were getting ready to do the pilot. Right. And so they called me up and they said, uh, hey, Bob, you work with Jack. Give us a lowdown. Uh, is there anything we have to be concerned about? And I said, well, no, no. Jack is, is the consummate pro. Uh, so the only thing that you just should be aware of is Jack talks really, really fast. So, you know, use that to your advantage. And after they shot the pilot, 
I, I got a call and said, boy, you weren't kidding about how fast he talks. We had to add 10 minutes of stuff because <laughs> he, he just ran through his part in record time. And you also have in used cars some boxing. Was that in already or was that to take advantage of Jack's past life as a pro boxer? Actually, we did not know at the time that, that Jack uh, had done boxing. Not at all. There was the, the fight scene was always written that way. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the stunt guys loved the fact that Jack knew how to throw a punch. He knew how to faint uh, when a punch was thrown at him. And uh, that scene is really, really violent. And it's the music that kind of takes a little bit of the edge off of it because, I mean, <laughs> these two guys are throwing each other. Jack is really... He's throwing Garrett Graham, you know, all around the office and busting windows and stuff on his head. And uh, yeah, Jack Jack used all of his uh, all of his boxing skills to bring a, a sense of of, uh, of reality and danger to that. And how much of that did he do uh, of that himself? And how much was uh, stunt double? We shot it. I remember that we shot this thing the way that they used to do all the old Republic serials because. Uh, I was a big fan of, of Republic serials and all good stunt guys back then were very familiar with this style of doing it. And and what Republic would do is they would get their stunt guys and they would just go in a wide shot and they do the whole thing. They would just beat the crap out of each other and they didn't have to pull punches because they were stunt guys. And then, you know, the director would watch all this stuff and decide how he was going to get the coverage and then Bob would bring in the actors and say, OK, I need I need a shot like this. I need a shot like that. And the actors, of course, had already watched the stunt guys do all this stuff. We would have to look at the at the sequence, you know, one shot at a time. And even then, if I could remember what shots were Jack and which were his stunt double, a guy named Vince Dedrick, I'm not sure. But that's how we blocked them. You mentioned that one of the things an actor looks for in a part is a death scene, and Jack Warden has a great death scene in used cars. Was that fun to shoot? Oh, yeah. Everybody was trying to hold in their laughter. This guy is dying, but he's also trying to get that last dollar out of the out of the customer right. while, while he's dying. It's really very funny. It's black humor, but it's great. And, and Jack, again, he comes in having this stroke, having this heart attack, and you know, his his eyes are bulging and Jack just, he nailed it. You've worked with lots of actors. Did he have any particular method or anything that he did to get ready for the various scenes? Uh, how was he in that regard? I, if, if there was, uh, he did it in his trailer and I, I wasn't privy to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seemed more like he was, you know, the, the sort of the classic uh, Spencer Tracy advice know your lines and don't bump into the furniture. I don't even remember Bob really trying to need, needing to give him a, a whole lot of extra direction about anything he was doing character wise. Jack got the characters. He brought a lot of himself into both of them. He was a dream. I, I know you shot a lot of the film in, uh, I believe it was Mesa, Arizona. Did you have much time together off the set? One thing I remember, I mean, there was a bar at the, we, we stayed at the Holiday Inn in, in Tempe, Arizona. And I think Jack was standing there with the rest of the cast and crew. I mean, but look, Bob and I, as, as producer, director, and, and co-writers, we didn't have a whole lot of time for, for socializing after work. We were trying to figure out how we're going to get the next day's work done and, you know, work out our shot lists and do we have to rewrite any scenes and so forth. We did break at Christmas time because we started shooting in, it was November of 1979, and we gave the crew an unpaid week uh, between Christmas and New Year's. Nobody complained about that. Everybody wanted the time off. Mm-hmm. But interestingly, uh, Jack didn't go anywhere. He stayed, he, he and Jack Petty stayed in Arizona together. And I kind of felt bad thinking that, boy, you know, doesn't Jack have a, have a place to go or you know, family to see or whatever. But no, he, he just he wanted to just take it easy uh, in the Phoenix area. And um, and that's what he did. We were talking earlier about casting and I mentioned, you know, timing and, and this, that and the other. The, the timing of used cars is that it came out 
right around the same time as airplane. Yeah. And um, <laughs> you have no control over that, do you? No, we do not. And what happened was used cars was originally planned for an August release. Well, we had a sneak preview in May or June, and it was one of the best sneak previews in the history of Columbia Pictures up until then. And the head of marketing was so excited about the audience reaction to the picture that he said, we got to get this movie out quicker. Uh, it's, it can play more of the summer if we get it out earlier. However, we did not have an ad campaign figured out. Mm -hmm. And so we were scrambling to do that. And of course, we didn't know anything about this movie called Airplane. So we were only able to book the movie in half of the country to come out on, uh, you know, July 12th or July 15th, whenever that was. The distribution guys and the marketing guys figured that that would be enough. But what nobody realized was uh, the word of mouth on airplane was so great. And, and I think that opened the 4th of July weekend. People said, oh, my God, you got to go see airplane. It's the funniest movie I've ever seen. And so people the second week were still going to see airplane. They weren't going to see used cars. And sadly, because we performed poorly in the half of the country that we did open in, the rest of the country wasn't in a big hurry to, to, for us to play there in August. So it was uh, <laughs> unfortunate to well, say the and, least. And, and yet all the reviews I've seen for the film have been excellent. I mean, it's just a terrifically funny film. You know, I'm sure some <laughs> some people will be offended by various bits and parts of it. But I think most people, if they haven't seen it, will really get a kick out of it. And there was something on, I think it was the used cars commentary, that it seems even back then, and that was the early days of home video and VHS, you guys already had a sense that these movies were maybe going to be seen by as many people on home video as would ever see it in a movie theater. Do I have that right? Yeah, yeah, we, we, could, we could see that. We could see that coming down the pike. And, 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 and of course, cable TV, where the movie was able to run without, with all the profanity intact. Right. And that's, that's really kind of when the movie caught on. People say, oh my God, I saw this movie on cable. It's the funniest thing I ever saw. So yeah, it, it had an afterlife that way. Uh, and then of course, when, uh, when the DVD technology came out, we were able to record commentary. We've all gotten so many compliments on the, on the commentary track. You know, we all kind of hit critical mass, Bob Zemeckis, Kurt Russell and I were just, we, we were just having a blast. Yeah, for people that haven't yet, if they can get the DVD with the commentary and watch the film and then watch the commentary, it's kind of like two different experiences and they're both <laughs> wonderful. Now, when you were making used cars, was Back to the Future in the works or in your mind? No, actually, what had happened was after used cars came out, Frank Price, who was, who was running uh, Columbia, uh, he loved the movie. And in fact, uh, used cars was originally developed at Universal and they passed on it and we brought it to Columbia and Frank Price had actually sold cars. Uh, so he he got it. He just loved it. Mm -hmm. And he said to us, uh, this is so this movie's so great. He said, when you guys have your next idea, I want you to bring it to me first. So my trip to uh, St. Louis to promote uh, the release of used cars in St. Louis, which was one of the later, the second half of the release, uh, was where I found my father's high school yearbook in the basement, discovered he was the president of his graduating class. And that's what gave me the idea for Back to the Future. Without my going back, back home to promote used cars as uh, homeboy makes good, you know, maybe Back to the Future wouldn't have happened. It sounds like something that was meant to be, and, and Back to the Future is one of the, the gems of all time. In choosing to go back to 1955, was that a requirement of matching up with you know mid-1980s, or was there a specific reason 1955 was the year you went back to? We always had this idea that it, it needed to be 30 years. So in the first draft, 
uh, first two drafts from early 1981. The present day was 1982, and Marty goes back to 1952. Mm. And every time uh, that a year went by, we do a little tweak to the script to keep it, you know, one year ahead of when we were submitting it. So finally, when we when we got the project set up, it was in 1984, and we said, okay, the movie's going to come out in 1985. So we're just sneaking by the seat of our pants here because of the idea of Marty inventing rock and roll was always uh, one of the central ideas of the story, and uh, it wouldn't have worked in 1956. <laughs> right. You have references to the Honeymooners, you have references to Ronald Reagan, you have references to Jack Benny. Any concerns that, uh, you know, a 1985 audience was not going to pick up on some of that? Not really. We knew that, like with any movie that's, that's going to do a period stuff, there are going to be people in the audience that have a better knowledge of the period than other people do. The movie was not dependent on understanding those gags. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that that is one of the things that makes Back to the Future a different kind of time travel movie than what was usually done, which would require the audience to know a little bit about the history of the period that the time traveler was going to. The final countdown, you need to know something about Pearl Harbor. You know, there are the Twilight Zone episodes where the guy goes back to try to prevent Lincoln from being shot. You know, you assume that everybody knows that, but you know, also know what they say about assumptions. But with Back to the Future, it was always, we're going to educate the audience. All the history that they need to know to understand this picture uh, is going to be laid out in the first 18 minutes of the picture. That's all you need to know. And if you get some of the other jokes, great. And if you don't get it, I mean, today you watch it. Nobody knows. Give me a tab. What does that mean? Right. They did. They did in the 80s. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't impede your enjoyment of the picture. Well, and I think a lot of people like movies where they see some insider things and pick up on them. Uh, you know, with Back to the Future, some of the early images conjure up George Powell's version of the time machine. Absolutely. There's the, the reference uh, to uh, Dr. Strangelove on the the sound system. Right. Uh, how, how much did your film preferences impact the scripts for Back to the Future and used cars? Oh, tremendously. Hardly anything is in our movies we didn't put there, you know, Mm -hmm. or decide that it belonged there. Sometimes there was an embarrassment of riches of of stuff where, God, we'd love to include that joke, but we don't have time for it, or it's it's slowing things down. But sure, there's there's in-jokes that only people that went to my high school understand in Back to the Future. You're making a movie, you're spending 12, 14, 16 hours a day working on it. You got to put stuff in that you like and that you know that your that your old friends are going to appreciate. Who are some of your big movie influences? Frank Capra, uh, Billy Wilder, John Ford, Howard Hawks, Hitchcock, you know, all the all the classic film directors uh, of the of the 30s and, and 40s and into the 50s. You know, growing up in the in the 50s and 60s was when there was the science fiction renaissance, I guess you can call it, where they were just every every H.G. Wells and every Jules Verne novel that hadn't been turned into a movie yet uh, was going to get turned into a movie. So, yeah, it was seeing the time machine when I was a kid, that, <laughs> that basically exploded my head. I thought it was so cool. Journey to the Center of the Earth. Of course, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea earlier than that. I mean, all this stuff and The Twilight Zone was uh, a favorite television show, both Bob and myself. I was a voracious reader of science fiction in high school and, and college. So, you know, the, the stories of, of Ray Bradbury and, and, and Robert Heinlein and Robert Silverberg and Isaac Asimov, all that stuff and, and comic books. Uh, and I got to I got to also, you know, take my hat off to the greatness of Walt Disney. Because when we were real little, Bob and I were, of course, seeing all the Disney animated shows. And we watched religiously the Walt Disney uh, TV series every Sunday night. And always loved it when Walt took us behind the scenes of a movie that was in production or behind the scenes at Disneyland. Kurt Russell used to refer to used cars as dirty Disney. He said, you know, it kind of has a classic Disney structure, but... 
it's so raunchy and so R-rated. It's, it's, it's like Dirty Disney. Well, that kind of brings us full circle. The Walt Disney Company played a big role in Kurt Russell's early career. Jack Warden had a couple important roles in The Twilight Zone. He did films with John Ford. And they've created a tremendous amount of good work if we just look back to the mid-20th century. Bob, what are you working on these days? Well, uh, the, the biggest and most exciting project is Back to the Future, the musical. Uh, it's going to reopen in London, knock on wood, on or about August 20th. We launched it back in February 2020 uh, in Manchester, England, uh, and had to shut it down uh, second week in March because of COVID. Uh, it's a fabulous interpretation of Back to the Future. I was involved with it from beginning to end, as was Bob Zemeckis. And uh, we cannot wait to have that back in front of audiences. I also uh, recently finished a book I collaborated with a guy named Joe Walser. It's called the Doc Brown's uh, Haynes Guide DeLorean Time Machine Manual. And it's a uh, really in-depth look at the DeLorean Time Machine, profusely illustrated every little part that's on the DeLorean Time Machine. You'll find out what, what it's called and what it does. Uh, and for me, and for a lot of the fans I've been hearing from, one of the most fun parts is the different iterations of the DeLorean are broken up with excerpts from Doc's journals. So those of you that want to find out what did Doc do when he first arrived in 2015, uh, what did Doc do when he first arrived in 1885, all those questions are answered. How did he meet Marty? All in this book. So grab a copy of Used Cars the DeLorean Guide, and keep an eye out for the American premiere of Back to the Future, the musical, which we suspect will be in the not-too-distant future. <laughs> Just a matter of time. <laughs> um, no, that's great. Bob, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us about Jack Warden. Well, it's been my pleasure. Jack was one of a kind. He, he was uh, a character actor who had such tremendous range. I have never heard an unkind word said about the man. Everybody who ever worked with him always had a pleasure working with him because he, he was a giving actor as well. You know, he, he'd work out a scene with somebody to make sure that his co-star was, uh, was coming off as, as good as possible because that made Jack look good too. It, it was our first experience with a seasoned pro who had both all this movie and TV training, as well as the theatrical training, you know, it just all came together. And I know you learn about people over the years and, and sometimes the reputation lives up to what you expect and sometimes it doesn't. And it's, it's just so nice to hear that what I like to think of Jack Warden from the many parts that he played over the years is validated by your experience uh, working with him. So, Bob Gale, thank you again. You're welcome. Do you have an idea for an episode of Where Have You Gone? A person, place, or thing gone but not forgotten, or forgotten but not gone, with a connection to the mid-20th century? If you do, let us know. Connect with us on Facebook at Where Have You Gone Podcast or on Twitter at WHYG Podcast. And now, back to the show. Jack Warden was 27 years old when the films Edge of the City, The Bachelor Party, and 12 Angry Men hit movie theaters. He was turning 50 years old when NYPD was on television, and when he landed the role of George Hallis in the TV film Brian's Song, starring James Caan as Brian Piccolo and Billy D. Williams as Gail Sayers. Brian's Song was a big deal when it was broadcast on ABC on November 30, 1971. It was the top TV film of 1971 with a 32.9 rating and a 48% share of the audience. It has memorable music from Michelle Legrand. Ever since, it has been considered one of the top television films of all time 
and one of the best sports films of all time. And it's a tearjerker. The 50-something Jack Warden had evolved from the tough guy in his 20s to the award-winning actor of Brian's song, Shampoo, and Heaven Can Wait. As he approached age 60, Warden reflected some of the toughness, but also some of the waggish prankster persona that Margot Jones had seen in the 1940s in roles like Max Corkle in Heaven Can Wait, Judge Rayford in And Justice for All, and President Bobby in Being There. One of his best roles was as Mickey Morrissey, the mentor and aide to Paul Newman's lawyer Frank Galvin in The Verdict, written by David Mamet and directed by Sidney Lumet. From the late 1970s until his final film, The Replacements, in 2000, Warden was playing toe-to-toe with the best actors and connecting the era of Henry Fonda and Clark Gable with the era of John Cusack and Keanu Reeves. Here's some examples. Warren Beatty in Heaven Can Wait and again later in Bullworth. Al Pacino in And Justice for All. Peter Sellers, Shirley MacLaine, and Melvin Douglas in Being There. Kurt Russell in Used Cars. Paul Newman, Charlotte Rampling, and James Mason in The Verdict. Denholm Elliott, Diane Wiest, Mia Farrow, Elaine Stritch, and Sam Waterston in September. Sean Connery, Mark Harmon, and Meg Ryan in The Presidio. Robert De Niro, Jessica Lange, and Eli Wallach in Night and the City. Robin Williams in Toys. Cusack and Wiest in Bullets Over Broadway. Sandra Bullock, Peter Boyle, and Bill Pullman in While You Were Sleeping. And lastly, Reeves and Gene Hackman in The Replacements. If it's true that you're judged by the company you keep, Jack Warden must be judged highly based on the company he was in throughout his career. I came across one other reference to Jack Warden that I want to point out from the book Journeyman Actor, a memoir by William Wyndham. And in the book, Wyndham writes, a guy who handled fans well was Jack Warden. He used to have such a charming way of doing it. The girls would line up for autographs and they're giggling and they're handing him pieces of paper. I was with him. They were asking me and I was saying, ladies, I have to get dressed. I can't. You don't. We never, etc. Warden said, Bill, let me show you. He kept the girls' pieces of paper. He would ask the girls, what's your name? You have to realize they don't want your name. They want their name. So he put Joanne, Betty Jane, Mary Lou, name, phone number, and they gave him his phone numbers. He'd thank them and keep the numbers. The girls caught on and laughed. They had a great time, and so did he. It doesn't mean he ever took advantage of it. And from what I can see, humorous and kindly are two good words to describe Jack Warden. Jack Warden appeared in five films that were nominated for the Academy Award for Best Picture. He was in an additional seven films nominated for Oscars for Writing. I haven't compared that score, if you will, to that of other actors, but I'm impressed by it. I've mentioned all of those films except one, The Apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz from 1974. Plenty of actors talk about their work and roles as jobs not so much different from jobs done by a plumber or an electrician. Perhaps so, but the work of an actor such as Jack Warden comes to life again and again, and in Warden's case is often thought-provoking in addition to being entertaining. Films like Twelve Angry Men, All the President's Men, and The Verdict are inspiring. They are all in different ways about speaking truth to power, whether it's the power of an overwhelming majority against a single individual, the power of the presidency and government against a couple reporters, and the power of a powerful law firm against a single struggling lawyer. And then some of Warden's work is just flat-out funny. I'm guilty of watching movies I like over and over again. On DVD or on Turner Classic Movies, occasionally in an actual movie theater, and on other movie channels. Some of my favorites are probably obvious already, 
but they include all the president's men and justice for all being there, heaven can wait, the Presidio, 12 angry men, the verdict, and while you were sleeping. You can't go wrong watching those films again or for the first time. And if it is for the first time, I envy you that experience. And there are his roles in the Twilight Zone episodes, The Lonely and The Mighty Casey. An aside about The Mighty Casey, originally the manager in the episode was played by Paul Douglas, a fine actor. He played the manager in the original film version of Angels in the Outfield. But Paul Douglas died as the production of the episode was underway, and Jack Warden was brought in to play the manager in The Mighty Casey. Warden basically saved the episode with his pinch-hitting performance. How much that meant to the future of The Twilight Zone and Warden's own career, we may never know. Here's one other Jack Warden, Rod Serling connection I think worth noting. It comes from the book Sidney Lumet, A Life, by Maura Spiegel. And she writes that in 1955, Sidney Lumet and the writers Reginald Rose and Rod Serling created a show called The Challenge, something unprecedented, underwritten by a private fund for original work on racial discrimination, blacklisting, academic freedom, and the legality of loyalty oaths. The series pilot centered on a beloved school bus driver, played by Jack Warden, who's fired for refusing to sign a loyalty oath. Unfortunately, no network was willing to pick up the controversial show. In All the President's Men, there's a scene between Warden and Martin Balsam. Warden's character is pushing for the two young reporters, Woodward and Bernstein, to cover the Watergate case, and Balsam's character is pushing back that more experienced reporters are required. Warden says, they're hungry. Do you remember when you were hungry? If you're hungry, if you were hungry, in the abstract or hungry for good, thoughtful entertainment, check out the work of Jack Warden. On film, on television, and on the stage, he left his mark, and thankfully, though he is gone, his work remains and will not be forgotten. Thanks again to Bob Gale for joining us to talk about Jack Warden. I'm Morris Eckhouse, host of Where Have You Gone? Our music was composed and performed by Harry Richardson. Our logo was designed by Jeff Santala. Thanks to Alan Feniger, Bruce Bonner, Mark Presser, Greg Brown, and Carl Mastercola. The Where Have You Gone podcast is produced by Alan Eckhouse. Where Have You Gone is a production of The Morwen Company, 